Make sure you check out our online store where we work with our graphic designer to create stunning garment and product designs that feature a wide variety of aircraft types such as British fighters, World War II aircraft, American bombers, Russian fighters and much more. You can pick your favourite designs and personalise any items within our Redbubble store that range from clothing right the way through to stationery. All of our designs feature our logo so you can show your support for the channel while getting a quality product. You can head to our website aircrewinterview.tv and click store or go to redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash AC interview. Thank you and enjoy. Yeah, so the Apache, um, when I went through in uh, December of 1991, um, my, uh, yeah, I was intimidated at first, obviously, I'm thinking, wow, this is it. You know, I didn't think anybody got to fly the Apache until they had thousands of hours, you know, in helicopters and all that sort of stuff. But here I was uh, right back at Fort Rucker, Alabama. And uh, um, that's when I learned, like I said before, all of the safety uh, engineering that they put into the Apache helicopter that they learned from the mistakes in the Cobra. So the Apache actually... Um, the rotor head itself was a fully articulated rotor head, so you could go negative with it. Uh, actually, it's got oh. a negative one and a half G, yeah, negative uh, half G limit. I can tell you from experience, it'll go a lot more than that, but um, it will go negative half a G is uh, the limit, what the dash 10 says. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, two engines instead of uh, one. Um, both engines. Actually, it, it'll fly on one engine pretty much. You know, it depends on the weight, uh, density, altitude, and all that sort of stuff. But it'll pretty much, uh, in forward flight, it'll fly on one engine, no problem whatsoever. Um, the fuel system was made um, ballistic tolerant, crash worthy. And I say this that the engine, the pumps to feed fuel to the engine are suction pumps. So if one of the fuel lines gets a, uh, a bullet hole in it, it'll suck air and the engine will just flame out. So you won't be where, as opposed to the, the uh, Cobra had a fuel pump in the tank that would push the fuel up to the engine. And if the, if the fuel line got a hole in it, it would just be pumping fuel all over the place and you could catch fire. The, the fuel cells in the Apache, two of them, they're uh, ballistically tolerant to uh, uh, 50 caliber high explosive incendiary round. They'll self seal up to a uh, 50 cal high explosive incendiary round. So Get a 50 cal round, 51 cal round if it's Soviet. Uh, that's a tracer round, so to speak. If it punches through the uh, the fuel cell, it'll self seal. And um, also, as you're using the fuel, the eulage that it uh, creates is uh, there's a nitrogen inertia unit that actually fills that void with nitrogen as opposed to air. So there's you know lessens the chance of there being a fire if there's no oxygen in there. So that's the stuff with the, uh, oh, and then the, uh, the fuel cells are actually, it'll take up to about 100 G impact uh, before it'll actually bust. Oh, so, yeah, the fuel cells actually were a, uh, a very stiff uh, Kevlar kind of a Kevlar material. If you took all the fuel, if you took it out of the helicopter and put it on the ground, you could actually kind of squish it. It was like a bag as opposed to a, a hard fuel cell. Mm -hmm. um, and then, um, so that's the fuel system. The oil system was the same. Uh, very, very, the oil system is built, the, the tank and everything is built into the engine as opposed to the Cobra. It had a separate oil tank. 
So if you had a bullet hole in the oil tank, yeah, you're going to lose all the oil. Yeah. With the Apache, if you get a bullet hole in the oil tank, you're getting a bullet hole in the engine. So mm -hmm. it's probably going to quit anyway. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the Each fuel, uh, each engine is in its own uh, stainless steel um, box, so to speak. Each engine the cell is separate from the aircraft to where uh, if there was a fire in the engine, uh, pull the fire handles and it'll close off the vents. Uh, and uh, shut off the fuel at the firewall, and then it'll you can blow the the halon into the uh, engine compartment, and then all the everything will go out the back of the um, everything will go out the back of the uh, the exhaust here on the Apache. So, um, and it'll fly on one engine, like I said. The um, all the gearboxes were designed to fly without oil um, for I think it's 30 minutes, and uh, and actually that happened uh, to one of our guys there in Afghanistan, but. Wow. Um, and actually, the gearboxes, the tail rotor gearboxes, are not oil. Uh, they don't have oil in them. They're grease, and um, so that's how it can fly without, so so to speak, without oil. Uh, if all the grease was to fall out of it, uh, or I say, you know, it took a bullet hole to the uh, to the tail box, tail uh, tail rotor gearbox, and all the grease was to flow out. There were wicks on the bearings that would hold enough grease to uh, let it fly for you know 30 minutes without any grease. Same thing with the transmission, actually. It'll fly, but the transmission actually has oil. It's just, um, it will, um, it'll fly without uh, oil for at least 30 minutes. Uh, at least that's as far as they tested it. I wouldn't want to try it any further than no, that. No, no, and actually, he was using Operation Anaconda. I think one of the Apaches, he actually lost uh, oil in his transmission. Um, they ended up flying it back you know, to a safe spot before uh, they landed. So, yeah, so that's all that. Now, the other big thing about um, the big, big, big thing about the Apache is that in a vertical impact on a crash, uh, the gun it really doesn't show here, but the gun has a chute that goes between the front and the back seat. So the gun will actually go in between the front and the back seat. If you were to hit with forward airspeed, the gun could actually break off and mm. um, and just, you know, break off on the bottom. The uh, both seats will collapse um both seats will in, in a controlled way they can collapse um uh, absorbing more uh vertical g impact um g's so the uh the other thing is the gear the landing gear itself it will actually it will fold up also it's on huge shocks but it's also got uh shear rings so that the gear will actually collapse as you're going down, the gear will actually collapse up into the helic or on the sides of the helicopter, mm. and then you've got the uh, the wing, the wing uh, wing stores and all. That'll also whoops. That'll also uh, absorb some of the impact uh, when it hits the ground. So the gear will stroke, the the wings will stroke, the uh, the gun will either break away or go between the seats, and then like I said, the the fuel cells are rated up to 100 G's, and uh, with all that, what they told us. If you were to hit with a 50G vertical impact, uh, by the time everything stroked, everything did what it was supposed to do, uh, you're talking about 10 Gs on your back. So you'll have back problems, but you'll be alive. Be and, alive. Uh, and I'm telling you, uh, just about every crash that I have seen in the Apache, if, um, if it wasn't a, you know, a guaranteed fatal one, you know, say, you know, driving straight into the ground, um, one, they did not catch fire, and two, uh, the guys that were riding it were pretty much 
there's a few that were hurt pretty bad, but uh, one of them is actually pretty, you know, in decent shape to have a, a normal life, so to speak. But whereas back in the Cobra days, no, there's no way they could have survived on some of those crashes and all. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. a lot of the stuff. Walking up to it the first time, it's if you ever get the chance to, they are unbelievably huge. Yeah. Um, they're very, very big. And that's when I thought the first time I walked up, like, wow, this thing is big. Um, but it's extremely maneuverable. Um, it'll roll, it'll loop, it'll, uh, you know, do some good hard turns, you know, pull some G's. Um, if you do it right you know, with enough power in the, the bucket speed is what we call it. Uh, yeah, you can pull up a good four G's and all, and, uh, Impressive. and all. So, and like I said, on the negative side, I know from combat, I've had it up to a one and a half negative G's. Uh, the only bad thing about that is you get everything that's on the floorboard comes to the ceiling, all the dirt, the gum, the, the trash comes to the ceiling. Uh, yeah, if it's not tied down, it's coming up. Yeah. Um, so flying the Apache the first time day VFR was un, absolutely unbelievable. Um, the the power that you had, how smooth it was, it just sounded like man, a, a Ferrari. I mean, it yeah. just sounded, you know, just powerful, smooth extremely well handling um all that was great until we got into the night vision system uh portion of it which was we called it the bag uh for safety reasons the instructor pilot would be in the front seat i would be in the back seat and but the back seat the entire um back cockpit is covered all the windows are covered and that's what they call the bag um so that you cannot see outside the only way you can see outside is with the night vision system, the, the monocle that goes yeah. over your right eye, that uh, is hooked up to the, oops, that's hooked up to the very front right yeah. here, the um, the pilot's night vision system, which is infrared. Um, so all you see on this, all, all you can see in the bag is what's inside the cockpit, your instrumentation and all that sort of stuff. And the only thing you see outside is what's night vision system. Now, since it's FLIR, you can see that, you know, the FLIR works during the daytime. It always works because um, it runs off heat. It doesn't run like night vision goggles off of uh, light amplification. So that's where we, you know, start flying the bag. And uh, it's it sucks. Uh, it's everything you <laughs> it can think awful. of. It is. It's absolutely awful. Uh, it's absolutely awful. You have to understand that, one, when you look right and left, as like a normal person, or you look, you know, left and right before you look left and right with your eyes, uh, you're doing that instantaneously. But the night vision system, the little, the motors can only move so fast. So getting used to it, when I would want to look hard, you know, to the left, see something, uh, one, you got to move your head. You can't just look to the left. You have to move your head to the left. Uh, and getting used to it, you have to uh, move your head to the left consciously as opposed to just snapping your right. head over because yeah. you snap your head over uh, your mind tells you yeah my head just looked left but your vision the camera is still trying to catch up so everything's you know coming around to look into the left like wow and you back, look back to the right and it slowly comes back to the right and all so it's disorienting doing that now once you get used to that the um, uh, they would give us training where we would hover and we would hover sideways down the center line of the runway. Now, your eye is up here about 10 feet forward and about 
four feet down from mm-hmm. where you're at in the back seat. So if the center line is right here on the runway and you're going to be hovering this way to, down the runway, you're looking here. So your right eye sees this edge of the runway. Oh, yeah. Your left eye, and this is, if this is at night, obviously, with a uh, naked eye, you can see the center line with your left eye. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's all fine and dandy. Now you switch it around, and now your, your left eye sees the center line, and your right eye, it's swapped over, sees yeah. the, uh, the edge of the runway flying down sideways. And, uh, but anyway, that's all a bunch of exercises, so to speak, that we did to uh, just get you used to flying the Vision system. Once you got, you know, once you finally got past about 150 hours of flying in the Vision system, then you, you could finally say, <laughs> I- I'm used to it. But a very, very perishable skill. You had to fly night vision system i would say at least once a week um you know at least three hours once a week you know to just to stay good with it and all very very um uh whatever so that was flying the apache that was just learning to fly the apache and then when we finally got to uh shooting all the weapons yeah just like the cobra it was uh that was a kick in the pants um the biggest difference with the apache is instead of the um uh, 7.62 minigun or the 20 millimeter three-barreled gatling gun you know, with the chunker or the tow missiles, which are, you know, tube-launched, optically-sided, yeah. wire-guided missile. Uh, the Apache had laser-guided missiles. So you would, on the front seat, just like the Cobra, the front seat controls all the systems. With the Apache, it has actually three vision systems. One was a, a direct-view optics, which was actually um, uh, just like looking through binoculars. And okay. uh, so, but you could only see that through the eyepiece, and right. um, so you could, and that way you could tell colors, um, because the other one was the day television camera, and you really can't get good colors with the day uh, television camera. So if you were trying to identify something, says, oh yeah, you know, ground guys told us it's a a light blue truck, you know, oh, okay. something like that. Yeah, um, you really couldn't tell it on the day TV camera. You could with the night uh, the direct view optics. Then you had. Uh, infrared the FLIR with the uh that third system on there um then you had all the uh, uh all the stuff that works with shooting laser guided missiles but the bigger deal was shooting the 30 millimeter high explosive dual purpose uh bullets with the apache this is an actual one here it actually says uh well, i don't even know if it would even focus in but it says h-e-d-p i don't know if you could see that on there yeah, but yeah, kind of, yeah you got it yeah there you go. And uh, so this is an actual shell of um, one. Um, this is the size of 30 millimeter. The real ones actually explode. The real ones actually will punch through about four inches of steel and will actually punch through uh, uh, four inches of steel and have about a five meter kill radius. So you're you're basically shooting uh, hand grenades out there with a shaped charge that will punch through four inches of steel. Uh, normally, we shoot them in 10-round bursts, um, just like the Cobra, the Apache, wherever you look, the gun slews with you, uh, shooting on that. Um, it was designed for the 30-millimeter gun, so yeah. you still feel it uh, in the helicopter, but it's definitely uh, a lot tamer, or it's dampened out a lot more than the Cobra and all. So, but yeah, you, every round that comes out, I mean, it's just a boom, 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 boom. You can, 
Oh yeah, you can feel it in your body. You know, all can the rounds coming out. Smell it as well out. in the cockpit. Oh yeah, the smell of yeah, um, yeah. It's uh, the smell of victory. <laughs> I don't know how you call it. It's the smell of victory. Um, the uh, it'll shoot quick. out to about four thousand meters. Yeah. And um, yeah, like I said, uh, six hundred twenty-five rounds per minute, plus or minus uh, twenty-five rounds, and uh, ten-round bursts is how we do it. Uh, the other thing that we got to shoot were uh, obviously the rockets, just like the uh, the Cobra. We got to shoot um, flechettes. And um, well, here's the actual the the actual uh, nose cone to a rocket. This right here is called the umbilical. A real one would have a um, I don't know if that's actually, but it would have a little plug on here that yeah. would um, uh, you plug it into each each rocket tube inside the rocket pod has its corresponding hole. Uh, they would wrap this around, plug it in the hole for it, and then inside the cockpit, let's just say if I'm shooting flechettes uh, and the guys, the bad guys were, say, 3,000 meters away, um, I would obviously squirt the laser, get the range, feeds into the fire control computer. It says, like, all right, you're shooting a flechette, so I got to release the, uh, the ordinance, which is this, and I don't know how that will... Let me see if I can get out of the way. Is that, that holding like up? A, then? a golf tee, almost. Yeah, it's a uh, um, a two-inch hardened steel nail. Uh, punch through an inch of steel and uh, whatever else you happen to be holding while it hits you. But the uh, as the the fire control computer will tell this rocket, you need to go out 3,750 meters, uh, 2,750 meters. And then blow the front out and shoot the uh, the payload, all the flechettes out, um, to where to where at 3,000 meters where the bad guys are, you'll have a pretty much a perfectly cinder, uh, 30 meter cylinder of 1,900 uh, flechettes coming at you. Now we fire those in pairs. So you're going to have you know almost 4,000 flechettes coming at you. You don't want to be and, in the way of that. Yeah, so the guys really loved it. I say the guys in Afghanistan, the, the ground guys loved it because, you know, the other things that we love shooting were the high explosive rockets. Typical, when they hit, they explode. But um, they cannot find any good intelligence from the uh, the guys that we killed. If we mm -hmm. shot them with the flechettes, what normally was saved were um, maps. Maybe sometimes cameras were saved, but maps and, and pretty much the identification of the... Uh, the guys that we just killed. Whereas if you hit them with a high explosive rocket, yeah, everything's pretty much gone. Um, so yeah, so that's why they loved us shoot, shooting uh, flechettes, and uh, we love shooting flechettes, especially at night. Um, with night vision goggles at night, you shoot off flechettes, and they're in Afghanistan. I mean, all of them uh, bouncing off the rockets, sparking and everywhere. It's like a bunch of sparklers, you know, all out there uh, bouncing yeah, off the rocks and everything. Yeah. Uh, and then we got, you know. Oh, sorry, uh, I, I was just going to say, like, oh, yeah. you mentioned Afghanistan there, but uh, when did you actually, when did you get deployed to Afghanistan? Like, what, what year was that for you and your, your squadron? Yeah, I was deployed to Afghanistan in the year uh, 2006. I say, I mobilized 2005, but uh, showed up there January 2006, and we left there uh, right at the beginning of February 2007. And uh, one year, uh, I was mainly based out of Bagram and Jalalabad, uh, which was, they called the Northeast Sector. So I was up around the, the Khyber Pass 
and mainly up uh, all north up in that where the, the Corngall Valley, which is uh, where we did a lot of fighting there. And then uh, Wanat, which was uh, Cop Keating. Uh, we helped put that in up at the Gowardesh. We went so far north. Holy mackerel. I mean, the mountains were up to 18,000 feet around us up there. So, uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a hell of a fight up there. Our average fight in Afghanistan was around 8,000 feet above sea level. Um, so even the Apache has a hard time. Uh, yeah, there's not enough Bernoullis up at that altitude, to, you know, for the uh, the blades to, to bite yeah. into. The engines were, were not so bad, but, uh, yeah, there's just not enough Bernoullis to really uh, pull a lot of Gs and stuff. So wild times while I was there. Uh, took a lot Can of pictures, share a few videos. stories for us? Uh, maybe like hours? Yeah. Kind of um, well, you know, it's kind of funny you say that because I, I had – I've got a bunch. Uh, we did a lot of uh, uh, shooting when we were there. Uh, one that particularly stands out, one of the first ones that I was in was in the Corngall Valley. Um, and this was in May. And we had, uh, we'd already been getting into a lot of shootings in the Corngall Valley. So pretty much going, it's about a four or five mile box canyon that you come in from the north off the Pesh River Valley. Um, and then the, the base of it was around 4,000 feet above sea level. I'm going to say four or 5,000 feet above sea level. And then the mountains on both sides and at the end were touching uh, 12,000 feet. <laughs> and it was no more than about, I'm not going to say two miles wide. So it's a pretty steep climb coming out of there if you wanted to go out anywhere to the south or other than coming in from the, the north. And all. But we kept getting shot at coming in, uh, coming in to the Corngall Outpost. Uh, we were not allowed to land there. The uh, the Schnooks were, uh, obviously they had to land there. And um, finally the captain that morning that uh, on this mission, he said like, you know what, we're gonna, sick and tired of getting shot at, uh, coming in now the, the Corngall, so we're gonna go out the south end. And I was kind of concerned, I'm like, you know, it's already in May, it's already getting hot. We're gonna have a hard time uh, climbing out the south end, um, just power wise, you know, with us uh, you know for the apache so he said well we're gonna we're gonna do this just to show them that it can't be done we're like wow that's that's a hell of a way to fight a war (laughs) so uh we go in there on the first one uh the chinook lands i'm circling above we do not land as apaches because one there's no need to but two yeah to have an apache on the ground there it's just a prime target for the taliban to start opening fire uh he takes off to the south i take off uh behind him and uh, as we're getting up to the saddle that we're going to cross, I'm like, wow, man, we're going to be crossing it very, very low to the trees. And I'm low. I'm talking like right across the tops of the trees. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? That, that'd be a perfect spot to have an ambush. So I ended up, uh, I said, hey, you want me to uh, put off a couple of rockets in that tree line ahead of us? And, uh, you know, just go ahead and uh, j- in case anybody's there, you know, put their heads down. And so, you know, the Snook guys are like, hell yeah. You know, so they tell everybody in the back, hey, the Apache's about to get next to us. And he's going to shoot off a bunch of rockets in front of us and all. So I'm like, ah, whatever. And uh, so we get up next to him, you know, and you know, fire off a couple of white phosphorus and all in there. And he's like, oh, man, that's cool. So go off the back end, you know, just come driving out of there, you know, 180 knots. Uh, go back, pick up the next round. Same thing. Go back to the um, the corn gold outpost. And this time, though, I just topped off with gas and it gotten hotter. And uh, so when the Schnook was about to take off, I thought, you know what? I'm going to just climb above him at least another 500 feet just to get a head start. And so when he's taking off to the south again, 
I'm staying with him, but I'm above him. And I'm thinking, you know what? We're not going to make it this time. Hmm. It doesn't feel that way. So I said, I'm going to hug this rock wall on the right side coming up on the saddle. And I'll, uh, I'm going to try and catch some thermals to help hmm. me get over the ridge, over the, the saddle, over the ridge line and all. So I get on the right side of the Schnook, back behind about, about uh, maybe about 100, 150 meters. And um, sure enough, as we're climbing on up, uh, the next thing I see is uh, I tell my lieutenant in the front seat, I'm like, man, here, we're stuck. I can pull in no more power. I can't yeah. turn to the right. I can't turn to the left because the, the Schnook's there. I don't want to get in his downwash. And uh, I, I just hope we make it. And right about then, I see smoke coming off the tail end of the, uh, I see smoke coming off the tail gunner that was sitting on the back oh. of the Chinook. And, uh, and I'm like, wow. And I was just about to squeeze, you know, uh, the radio and tell the Chinook like, Hey man, you got smoke coming off your, uh, your Chinook. And right about then I see the red tracers going off <laughs> to my right. And I'm like, holy mackerel. I looked to the right on that rock wall there, just on the bottom of it was uh, a bunch of Taliban were shooting at him. And they're all just blasting. And I'm gonna say at least 10. Uh, I see them and they're just exchanging gunfire back and forth as we're coming up on them. And I'm like, oh, you know, crap. Um, So I was up the gun real quick. I look over to the right, right at them. And right about that time, the Taliban, they were looking at the, you know, shooting at the Snook. They kind of looked back at me going like, oh, Habib, <laughs> there's, a Chinook, there's an Apache. Yeah. And I'm even closer. Now I'm saying I'm maybe 50 meters away from that rock wall. And uh, I mean, I could see them. I could see their band dress. I could see their teeth and all that. They wow. swing their gun, their AKs at me, and they're just hammering away. I mean, yeah, they're shooting at me. Squeeze the trigger uh, with the 30 millimeter, put off a 10 round burst. And um, the first round, uh, first burst hits towards the left side of the group. And um, pretty much I see one of the guys, pretty much I hit him, I say right around the lower part of the chest. I, I say this because the top part of his body blew up, uh, kind of popped up in the air. I thought, oh, that's kind of weird. And, uh, you know, you're saying all this, it's all happening in slow motion. Yeah. And uh, shoot the first burst. I'm like, damn it, I need to move the gun back to the right a little bit. Uh, then I see uh, the puff quick flash and here's an rpg and it's coming right at the guy did it perfect he shot he shot in front of me yeah and uh he led me perfect uh the problem was he didn't adjust for my climb so it came like right up underneath my seat went off to the left exploded about 25 meters or so off my left side and uh i'm like damn it you know it's a uh you know rpg and uh, look back to the back to the right. Squeeze another burst again. Squeeze another burst again. And by this time, we're flying past them. And then uh, squeeze, squeeze, and nothing's coming out. I'm like, damn it, you know, <laughs> nothing's coming out. Squeezing, squeezing. Get over the ridge line and pop off the back end. And by this time, my uh, co-pilot's going like, where, 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 where? And he had taken the gun away from me, and he was. That's why my gun didn't shoot anymore. He. Ah wazed it up weapon action switched it up and took it away from me and uh so as we go over off the other end i'm going stop <laughs> stop <laughs> you know uh right then you know the chinook calls back saying yeah they've got several wounded in the back of their uh chinook and i'm like damn it um so now we're driving down you know that back valley there 
And uh, you know, I'm telling like, don't ever take the gun. If you don't know what I'm shooting at, don't take the gun. Nice. And uh, damn it, you know, now we got wounded on that. So wow. uh, nobody was killed on our side. Um, it was interesting because I found out later, and I'm talking way later in the year, uh, I think it was around October, uh, we were weathered in at a special forces A camp uh, near that area. And when we were, I was walking through there looking at their maps and sure enough on that map, was the Corngall Valley, and they had all these little post-it notes saying how they had uh, all the different intel on the spots. And right there at that one spot in May, it's the last known whereabouts of Ahmad Shah. That was the one that went after uh, uh, an Operation Red Wings on Lone Survivor. Mm-hmm. That's who they were going after was Ahmad Shah. And, um, and that's what I'd said too. I said like, normally when we pass any Taliban, they don't shoot at us. They hide. While these guys shot at us with as, as much as they did, uh, that explained a lot. That that was probably Ahmad Shaw that I was shooting at that day, that they were making it out of that valley. So, um, yeah, that was an interesting fight. And then I came home for R&R <laughs> right after, you know, for two weeks of uh, R&R. And <laughs> I tell you what, I was still wound up after that I little fight. Imagine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a bunch of other fights after that also. It was... Uh, a bunch of fights uh, for the rest of the year. Just you know, rescued the ta- uh, rescued uh, a convoy there in the Tagab Valley. Um, in my movie, we end up um, putting in the last gun battle that I had there in the Corngall Valley. That uh, escorting a general, a one-star general, in there, and it came under attack. And I didn't have any bullets. Um, yeah, it was a uh, wild times there. So absolutely, and I'm sure we're going to have to get you back on because there's so many stories, but. Before we wrap up the Apache uh, part of this interview and get into the more personal and talk about your books and obviously being a producer on a documentary, um, you also had a crash in an Apache. Uh, am I correct <laughs> saying that uh, there, Daniel? Yeah. Yes. Um, so in uh, 1995, actually March 6, 1995, it's interesting how you can remember that. It was a Monday night. Uh, flying on the reserves, flying the Apache. Uh, it had a flight control malfunction. Um the helicopter essentially did its own thing. Um, and I say did its own thing. It, it is a fly-by-wire helicopter, the Apache is. Um, the uh, flight control computer and the stabilization computer basically had a fight. Um, and what came out of the fight was uncommanded tail rotor controller uh, control inputs. So the helicopter basically, um, it pivoted hard uh, on the yaw axis Mm -hmm. and uh, it pivoted pivoted so hard on the uh, to the left or the power pedal that it bled the main rotor off and we ended up hitting the ground kind of sideways Um, a lot of things went my way Uh, a lot of things went my way in the crash Um, the first time we hit was um, the blades it, we hit to the right side, so the blades were on their upswing mm. when they uh, went across the canopy the first time. Um, but they still, and I say this because it didn't come through the cockpit with me. It didn't take my head off. Uh, obviously, it didn't. And then uh, <laughs> uh, the gear did stroke. The seats did stroke, just like it was uh, it was supposed to. But uh, it was a flight control uh, problem that actually, after the crash and after the investigation and everything, they they kind of said like oh hey by the way uh for all the apache community we've had a a rash of uncommanded flight control inputs 
with uh, this uh, serial number of um, heading attitude reference system, you know, HARS uh, computers. Uh, if you have this problem and if you survive, then fill out this questionnaire as to, you know, where all the switches were, your flight regime and all that sort of stuff and all. So it was already a known problem. Um, they were just, I wouldn't say in the infancy of trying to of say like what's going on. They already knew it was happening. Um, it's just mine. I think I was one of the first uh, crashes that they said like, oh yeah, this, we got it here. Here's the computer. Everything, you know, wasn't destroyed in the crash. Wow. So um, yeah, that was a, uh, uh, come to find out years later, actually, actually, uh, about uh, a year ago now, uh, I did get a uh, traumatic brain injury from that, uh, TBI, and that was actually the start of uh, PTSD uh, that I eventually got diagnosed with. Um, and I say this, just over a year ago is when all this uh, came out, but, um, you know, when it happened at, uh, the first time, they're saying, all right, man. There's no bones sticking out. There's no blood. Get back to work. Get on with it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, just get back to work. You you owe us. Come on. You owe us 20 million for one helicopter. (laughs) And uh, um, so, yeah, it uh, – and, I, you know, I I say I kind of knew all this uh, over the years because things just weren't right. Got you. Uh, And and things really came out – in Afghanistan, you know, in combat, uh, the TBI and the – you know, the PTS uh, really came out there. And even then, I was like, yeah, something's just not right. Um, and that's along with, uh, you know, I was flying for customs and border protection, flying the jet uh, and the helicopter for them. And it come out a couple of times on that, uh, you know, incidences of like, ooh, this is yeah, not right. I think whether you, like people like it or not, but once you get kind of like a label on something, you can work to a yeah. solution or a, you know, a, a management scheme to it, which is great. But uh, you're yeah. here with us, which is great, and you seem good at the moment, Daniel. But um, oh, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, how long did you spend on the Apache? Uh, I only got to fly for 20 years. Um, 20 years and about 2,300 hours in the Apache. Wow. And uh, so, yeah, it was. Um, I miss it. Uh, I miss it. Got to uh, actually uh, when I got back from Afghanistan, I flew the Alpha model. Apache in Afghanistan, which as uh, everybody said, that was the uh, the Corvette or the, the Ferrari because we had the uh, Charlie Delta model engines and yeah. we were still a thousand pounds lighter than the longbows that, it, that had been going out there. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, um, ended up going to the longbow course. I want to say it was 2009. Yeah, 2008 or nine. Got to go to the longbow course. Um, really, the only differences on that was um, a Freon air conditioner system instead of an air cycle machine. So it worked all the time. And then uh, <laughs> the other thing was pretty much most of the switches were replaced with electronic push buttons, you know, the multifunction display, yeah. you know, with, and that's what they really replaced on that. And then adding a, a tactical, tactical situation display on it, it was a stick map. It wasn't a full on um a graphical map like the later uh, block models had on the uh, the longbow, but it was still good. So I've got a couple of questions from our patrons, if you're happy to answer them before yes. we get into the personal side here, Daniel. Right, so this is from Noel Rodriguez. Uh, can Daniel describe any 
air-to-air -air BFM training he has done, whether it's dissimilar air combat training against other attack helicopters or fast movers slash jets? Uh, no. Um, the Apache originally had, uh, they wanted to design it with uh, Sidewinder missiles or sting uh, say, Stinger missiles on the wing uh, ends of the wingtips, but uh, it was just added too much complexity back then, and they decided to let, let the uh, Air Force Navy uh, fast movers take care of uh, the sky. I did go up against uh, an A-10 in the, oh, cool. uh, the simulator in Arizona before we uh, mobilized. And, uh, yeah, I turned turned in on him. And, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was fun. Uh, I did <laughs> shoot him. Uh, he did end up coming around shooting me. But uh, that's the only time. We never really uh, – um, the only, I say, BFM training that they gave us was uh, that if a fast mover, if you could see a fast mover coming at us, turn into him and dive down and try to get underneath him that way he couldn't he don't he could only get to a point where he can't dive anymore without hitting the ground and all but that's really the only uh, tactics that they ever taught us on that well hopefully that's answered that one for you Noel. and the last one is from alexander was there something in the old cobra he missed in the apache systems capability or something else yeah the uh the minigun was a blast um the minigun was a blast, and the air conditioner blowing through the seat. But uh, and the chunker that was a blast too. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, everything else now uh, definitely the Apache. But yeah, that, that's the only stuff that I liked about the Cobra. And, and the nostalgia of it, you know, it's kind of like yeah. you know, kind of like putting uh, you know, flying the P fifty one Mustang. You know, yeah. everybody would love to do that and shoot it, but, but I'd rather go into combat in an F sixteen or F eighteen or F twenty two. Well, thanks for answering that for Alexander. Uh, so, yeah, from me, uh, obviously you've wrote some books and also a producer on a documentary as well. Can you tell us about this, Daniel? Yeah, so when I came back, when I was there, I wrote a lot, as much as I could, uh, my logbook, and I wrote a bunch of emails to my, um, you know, to family and friends and such. And uh, when I came back, the girl that helped me write it here, Sandra, um, she had read all of my emails and, and stuff I was sending back to the family and friends, and she suggested I write a book. But I wrote it mainly to give something to my kids, uh, yeah. family and kids, uh, when they grow up, you know, 100 years from now, they can say, hey, what did, you know, dad do in the Great War on Terror? And there it is. Uh, it ended up being a number one bestseller when it came out. And, um, and from all that, over the years, and I'd filmed about 25 hours of my own videos with my own video camera and such. And with that, we ended up making, uh, let's see, there we go, uh, the film called Above the Best. And uh, it is, um, I found out this new term, it's called uh, Immersive Narrative Documentary. And uh, it uses all real footage from uh, what I took in the air in the fights that I was in and the guys on the ground that I was supporting, they took some uh, video and uh, pictures from the same battle from the ground. So you get the same battle, but from two perspectives. And yeah. it's got all the radio, you know, the actual radio traffic that I put on it. Uh, the guys on the ground, same thing. It's got all their actual talking and all that. None of this is gun camera, uh, none of this is gun, ca uh, gun camera footage. It's uh, all real stuff that I took with my camera. And all, but uh, and it's actually the battles that are in the book. Um, it's the real stuff, and um, so that's both of those are available on Amazon. Um, 
yeah, so uh, the website that I can be reached at, uh, well, I say reached at, yeah, is uh, danielsouthofheaven.com, all one word. And uh, yeah, that's, you can just find some more information on that. Yeah, definitely. And I'll link it all in the description below, folks, so you can go and check it out, purchase the book and the documentary. But uh, a couple of personal ones to wrap up here from me, Daniel. Uh, yeah. Do you have any hobbies? Yeah, I uh, I like snowboarding. Actually, I'm fixing to hopefully go do it here in about another week or so. And then uh, uh, just kind of chill and relax. Uh, fly fishing here and there. That's a good way to pass the time. Sounds good. Sounds good. This could be it. I'm going to guess. I've got it in my head. Favorite aircraft <laughs> you have flown? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's going to be the Apache. It uh, It's <laughs> still yeah, first love. And all that, and uh, yeah, it's definitely Apache. Now, I, I would still love to, you know, fly a uh, an F-16 or an F-18. You know, yeah, an F-22 if it was you know a real fight, whatever. But the F-16, F-18 would be you're still flying the aircraft. You know, the F-22 is just so advanced; it's uh, it takes the fun out of uh, <laughs> yeah, takes the fun I, out of it. I think. Yeah, I know what you mean. Because my next question was going to be an air, a favorite aircraft, uh, an aircraft you would like to fly. Um, but let's put it as like past or present. So what would you like to fly? I'm going to keep it, let's say, in the helicopter realm and then also just anything. So two answers here. <laughs> uh, in the helicopter realm, yeah, I, oh, wow. You know, I I, I would say maybe a, uh, an AH-6, you know, with uh, the Task Force 160th. Yeah. One of those, you know, shoot one of those guys. But I've flown an OH-6 and... Uh, uh, you know, it's a nice You've little helicopter. Off, you? So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's really no, there's not too many older aircraft or helicopters I'd like to fly. Older aircraft, yeah. P fifty one Mustang or F four U Corsair. Yeah, no, I wouldn't mind doing that. Uh, that would be fun. <laughs> that would definitely be fun. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Daniel. So one last time, can we find you online? Are you on social media, Instagram, uh, Twitter, or anything else? Or if you can just remind us of where to find that DVD again, that'd be great. Yeah, uh, both the book and the um, both the book and the DVD are available on Amazon, uh, iTunes also, and uh, Hulu uh, for the movie. Um, I'm on Facebook and um, Daniel Flores, and on uh, uh, was it uh, Above the Best, and uh, that's the other movie that not Above the Best, uh, Apache Warrior. I helped do that movie also, but Above the Best on that. And then uh, DanielSouthOfHeaven.com, all one word. That's uh, the website for myself and the book and all that. Brilliant stuff. Again, guys, I'll link that in the description below. But Daniel, a pleasure talking to you and having you on the show. It's been it's been great hearing a bit about your story. And again, I'm sure we're going to get you back on because I want to prod you a bit more here, uh, you know, for another interview. But thanks very much, mate. All right. Thanks, Mike. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers.